Welcome to the Redeemer Community Church Podcast. The following audio is from Redeemer Community Church, located in Johnson City, Tennessee. We hope it will be encouraging to you as you listen. All right, so they're basically taking this position of saying, look, Paul, everyone knows this. And then they give their theological argument. So they're building a case. They're showing their theology. They're saying, look, we know that the gods that these temples have been built to really don't exist. We know there's only one God. And therefore, if those other gods don't exist, they can't actually affect the meat, right? And so the meat had basically three different purposes for it. On, on one sense, meat was, was burned on the altar as an act of worship. But then they would take other portions of the meat and cook it and serve it at festivals or, or, or um, ceremonies. And then the third part of the meat was taken to market and sold for a profit. And so they're saying, look, for, as far as the meat that's not given in worship, just the meat that people are selling in the market or cooking and, and serving at the temple, when it's not tied to an act of worship, we know that that meat hasn't been affected by these false gods. Therefore, let's not waste it. Like just logically and theologically, there's nothing wrong with eating this meat as long as it's not tied to an act of worship. Like everybody knows that is what they're basically saying, right? And so they're thinking logically at this moment. That makes me think about an experience I had at Barb's a couple of months ago. Back in August, um, I, was, I was trying the keto diet. I was intermittent fasting in the morning. And so I skipped breakfast um, and then forgot lunch. I don't think I was fat adapted, so I was hungry. And then at dinner time, I was starving. So on our way to our small group, we, we swung through barbs, and I fixed the most keto-friendly, beautiful burrito in a bowl ever. I mean, this thing had spinach and chicken, no rice or beans, but then a ton of cheese and avocado and like chipotle ranch and just like some, some other vegetables. And I was like, this is going to be incredible. We put a top on it, head to small group. I get to small group, I'm, I'm, my stomach's eating itself, and then I open it up, I take a bite, and my buddy Drew is looking at me with a just jaw dropped, and he goes, there's a hair in it. And I was like, what? And I'm looking in my bowl, and he goes, no, in your mouth. And I was like, oh, like I pull it out, I'm like, this, and at this point, I'm done. Like I'm done, like that food has been tainted. Like, I don't want to, I literally didn't eat at Barb's for months afterwards. Like, I was, I was, and like, that's three times a week for me. So all of a sudden, Barb's is off my plate. T- people at work there are texting me, did you die? Like, what's, what's happening? We haven't seen you in a while. But for me, like, I couldn't get past the experience of there was a hair in my food. But everyone else was shocked that I didn't eat the rest of it. So we took a poll, and most of the group concluded they would actually finish that food. I'm like, what? They're like, the hair didn't affect the whole thing, just a small part. Just remove that, eat the rest. And I'm sitting there going, you can logically process this, and you can eat it, but my experience says, nuh-uh. Like, I'm not touching it. Someone else eat this food. I'm done. Like, it, it affected me. Now, logically, they didn't want to waste good food, and that's exactly what's happening here. They've thought through this theologically. They've thought through it logically, and they're saying, this food has not been affected by these false gods that don't exist, so let's not waste the good food. And at first, it seems like Paul is on the same page with them. It seems like Paul is tracking with them. As they say, everybody knows this. But before he says, I agree with you, he adds a qualifier. Look at verse 7. He says, however, not all possess this knowledge. In other words, he says, look, what you're claiming that everybody knows, 
it's not nearly as common as you might think. This reminds me of my, my days in high school. When I was a sophomore in high school, I started getting really plugged into my youth group, and I didn't have all of the, the, the like church kid background of knowing all the verses. So when someone would say, everybody knows what John 3.16 says, I'd be like, yeah, everybody knows that. Then I'd get home and have to look it up. Like, oh, okay, I got it. Right? I didn't know. And so what people thought was just common knowledge actually wasn't nearly as common as they realized. And so they're saying, he's like, look, not everybody knows what you're talking about. He says, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Then he says, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. And so in verse 8, he basically says, look, what we're talking about at the end of the day, this is a morally neutral issue or this is a gray area. But then he introduces this concept of saying, but some people have a weak or insecure conscience. And so he's going to use that term weak over and over and over again. And it feels a little bit politically incorrect. Uh, There's a place in Texas that has really good barbecue sauce, but it's really hot. And so they have a second sauce that's almost just as good, but because it's not hot, they called it sissy sauce. And so I grew up eating barbecue with regular sauce and then giving sissy sauce to my friends, but one day it changed. It changed because it was no longer politically correct to call someone a sissy. And so they had to change the name of the sauce to just non-hot, all right? And, and so in the same way, you're looking at this, you're like, all right, is he allowed to say that? to call people weak. But here's what he's doing is is he's showing that, look, some people are strong in their theological understanding. And for them to participate in an activity like this, right, it it has no experience attached to it. Like it's it's a powerless experience for them. But for other people, when they eat this food, it is a very real experience that is weakening their conscience or it's affecting them in a negative way. And so when you are in a, a morally neutral issue or in a gray area, instead of trying to color with black and white lines, we need to try to see where the other person is coming from. That's what Paul's going to get at. Look at verse 9. He says, but take care that this right of yours. And right? so he's saying, look, like you, you are, if you're asking, can I do this? He's saying, you do have the right to, right? So take care of that. This right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble." Right, so the strong, they thought that by encouraging the weak to participate in what they were doing, that it would have this effect of strengthening them, that this would help them grow in their faith by knowing theology and applying it to their lives. But Paul says it's actually having the opposite effect. Instead of building them up it's bringing them clo- and bringing them closer to Christ, it's actually destroying them and pulling them away. So it's, it's making them further from Christ instead of closer to Christ. So, so what's happening here is when Jesus went to the cross on our behalf, right? When we talk about the gospel and when he lived a life that we couldn't live, when he died the death that we deserved and he rose from the dead, there are some implications that we get to experience because of that. 
one of those is explained in Romans 8.1, where, where Paul says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation. In other words, he's saying, look, when, when you sin against God, you are declared guilty before him. So as the righteous judge in your sin, God looks at you and says, you are guilty. And because of that guilt, you are separated from him and you deserve eternal um, his eternal wrath and his eternal punishment. You deserve to be forever pulled away from him, right? That, that's where we're at. But when Jesus goes to the cross, he nails your guilt and shame to it and he erases that from your life. So now when God looks at you, there's no condemnation. Now when God looks at you, he doesn't see guilt. He sees innocence. He doesn't see a sinner who's been pulled away from him. He sees a saint who's brought near, right? And so these new converts, who are a little bit insecure in their conscience, they know the weight of their guilt from their former lifestyles. And they've experienced the beauty of Jesus erasing that guilt and bringing them to freedom. But he's saying, look, for them, because when they eat this food, they experience that same guilt and shame that they used to experience. What you're doing is you're removing the truth of the cross and you're replacing it with a lie. Or you're taking something that Jesus died to erase and you're writing it back into their story. And when you do this, you're doing something that's actually opposed to what Jesus did when he died for them. And so what we see is when we cause someone to stumble, that's a serious issue. So much so, if you were to read Matthew 18, verse 6, Jesus looks at a group of people and he says, look, it'd be better for you to tie a large millstone around your neck than to cause one of these little ones to sin. It'd be better for you to drown in the sea. Right? And so when you look at that, we see that Jesus takes it very seriously when our lives lead other people away from him. And so if Jesus takes it seriously, we need to take it seriously as well. Right? And so, so at the end of the day, the verses that he's, he's giving us in chapter 8 are helping us to, to, to understand these morally neutral issues. Right? These issues where one person might be fine doing it and see it as their right or their Christian freedom, and someone else says, I just can't get there. So what I want you to do is I want you to think through, because food offered to idols isn't one of our gray areas. Right? So, so I want you to think through some of your gray areas, some things that you've experienced that have been debated within churches or maybe Christian friend groups or just that you've seen other people talking about. Things that people are saying, I have the right to do this. And someone else says, no, you don't. And someone says, I'm going to give this up. And someone says, why? That's dumb, right? Things that maybe scripture, you feel like scripture isn't 100% clear on, right? For some people, maybe it's political parties. Like, okay, like where do we stand politically? And other people, it might be dress code. Can she wear that on a hot summer day? Or is that causing guys to stumble? Like it's the dress, maybe for other people, it's alcohol. Can you drink or should you not drink? Like, what do we do with that? Maybe it's, it's, well, how much house is too much house? Or can I go on this vacation or is that a bad use of the money? Or can I watch this movie? It's rated R and it's not about Jesus getting crucified. So is that a bad rated R movie? Or like, well, or maybe it's something different. Like maybe it's music, whatever it is. We have these issues that scripture doesn't speak clearly to. And so how do we handle that? How do we process that? Especially when people have different opinions. Right? So to, to get there, I want us to step into the shoes of this original audience. Okay, I want you guys to, to imagine living in, in this scenario. Right? You, you experience what's happening here. You write to Paul. You've waited for a few months, and, and finally the letter comes. Right? And so, so put yourself in, in these shoes. Right? You grew up 
in a Jewish home, and you are steeped in the scriptures of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, you know Deuteronomy like the back of your hand, right? And you get invited to your friend's wedding, and it just so happens that it's going to be at the temple of Zeus. And you're processing that. You're saying, I don't know if I should go to this wedding or not. But then you start quoting scripture and you start to, to work through your theology and you're saying, okay, I know there's only one God. I know these other gods don't exist. And I know that they can't affect this meat in any way. So I'm, I'm going to go. This is a great opportunity because there's probably a way that I can actually work Christ into the conversation with some of my friends that might wonder why I'm here. And so this will be a great opportunity. Maybe I can win them to Christ. And so you go and, and the food comes out and you start eating it and it's amazing. And you're saying this really is the best spread in town. But then on the outside looking in, you see someone from church. They didn't grow up in a Jewish background. They, they actually grew up going to this temple. They've actually sacrificed and burned meat on the altar to Zeus. And they see you and they say, what are you doing? And you're like, I'm eating food. And they say, you can't do that. You're a Christian. And, and you sit there and you're just like, no, I can. And so you start explaining your theology and your logic to them. And they're hearing you use terms they've never heard. And they're, using, they're hearing you quote verses that they haven't memorized or even heard yet. And, and so they don't feel right, but they're going, I trust you. And so they take a bite of the meat but instead of feeling this powerless experience for them, they start to feel horrible. They feel like they've just told a thousand lies. They feel like they've committed adultery. They feel like they've ruined the most important thing in their life, and so they run off. And you're not seeing this person at church on Sunday because they've fallen. Right? Like, like in this scenario, this is what's happening in this text. In this scenario, you have two different people. You have the strong people and the weak people. And this has nothing to do with physical strength, right? And so another way to think of this is you have your head knowledge people and your heart knowledge people, okay? The head knowledge people are those who think through the facts and the figures to make their decisions, right? They're thinking logically and theologically. Then you have your heart knowledge people, and these are the people who don't necessarily know the verses or the theological terms, but they operate off of their gut feeling. So they, they make decisions based off of how it feels. So if you were there in this situation, which group would you fall into? Are you the type of person that makes decisions based off of facts and figures? Or are you the person that leans into what you're feeling in your gut? Okay? So, so Paul writes to these two groups of people, and the answer he provides actually doesn't um, necessarily make either party feel like he's on their team. Right, so, so, so what's happening is both of these parties, the head knowledge people and the heart knowledge people, are actually being shaped more by their culture than they are by Christ. And so Paul sees that, and he wants to address this issue in a different way than they're expecting. So they're expecting him to say, you can eat the meat, so eat it. Or you can't eat the meat, so stop. But instead of doing that, he's saying, we've got to understand how you are being shaped culturally instead of by Christ, right? So the head knowledge people, if you were to go back in this, this um, religious climate, you'd see there are basically two groups of people that had their reasoning for how to please God or their gods, right? There are two religious parties, right? One mindset said, okay, you, you get accepted by God or you please God by intellectual assent. It's all about knowing the right answers. So if someone was to quiz you, you could quote the right things, you could say the right answers. It's all about understanding who God is. It's a knowledge thing. It's a head thing. 
right? And so Paul looks at this headstrong people, the, the, the head knowledge group, and he says, look, you are in danger of thinking that your acceptance with God rests on your good theology. And if that's what you're resting in, you're going to miss the boat. Then he looks at the heart knowledge people. And there's another group in Corinth that they believe their right standing with God rested on their performance, on their ability to do the right things or not to do the wrong things. And he says, look, you're in danger of thinking that your religious performance is a way to God's acceptance. At the end of the day, if you're leaning on what you can do, you're going to fall short as well. So he shows them, look, neither your, your religious knowledge or your religious performance has any effect on how God views you. The only way that you can be fully accepted and forever loved by God is through putting your faith in the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And so he wants both parties, the headstrong people and the heartstrong people, to view this issue through a way of life that's being transformed by the gospel. You see, when, when you experience and know God's acceptance as a gift of grace, it changes your life in, in, in so many ways. But two of the ways we see in this text that it's meant to change you is one, it's meant to lead you to a pursuit of knowing God rightly. On one sense, it's meant to change you into, to, to lead you to a pursuit of knowing God and knowing Him rightly. And the second thing it does is it changes you to, to pursue living out love. Right? It should make you want to pursue knowing God rightly, and it should change you to want to pursue living out love. You see, so often our concern when it comes to these morally neutral issues is, am I allowed to do that? Can I, am I allowed to do this? Instead, we should ask, how does the gospel shape the way I see this? Right? And so when you know the gospel, it's going to give you a desire to pursue knowing God rightly, and it's going to give you a desire to live out your love. All right, so, so think about this. Like, how do, we, how do we work through this practically? All right, how do we work through this practically? Let me give you guys three things. The first thing is this. Know the difference between knowledge as arrival and knowledge as pursuit. Okay, so when, when Paul uses that word knowledge in verse 1, he uses two different words. One has this idea of arrival. I've figured it all out. And the other has the idea of being on a journey. Okay, so one is this position of, I've got it all figured out, I've arrived. And he looks at those people and he says, that puffs you up. That, that is a dangerous thing. But the other is this knowledge where you are saying, I'm on a journey in pursuing knowing more God. You see, at the end of the day, we will always know in part on this side of eternity. So the gospel and knowledge of God is never something that we understand fully and move on to to more advanced things. It's something we continually grow deeper and deeper and deeper into, right? So when we think of knowledge, we can't carry ourselves as those who have arrived. We need to pursue it as those who are on a journey. And I get it. Like when you think about, okay, I want to know God rightly. What's the danger if we don't? If you don't know God rightly, you will inevitably make God out to be someone you want him to be instead of who he's revealed himself to be. Okay, you will make God out to be someone you want him to be instead of someone he's revealed himself to be, right? And so when you think about pursuing knowledge of God and, and getting on this journey, it's a super intimidating thing. 
because you start reading and you're going, this is confusing and this is hard and there's words that I don't know what they mean and, and like there's different literature styles and it doesn't read like my newspaper or the, the blog that I go to. Like this is tough and so we, we throw in the towel. And so if you're sitting there and you're intimidated by, by this pursuit of knowing God rightly, let me just say this. I, I know our culture and we live in a world where people can discipline themselves to do Whole30 for 30 days. Right? Where you're like, what can I, what can I do? We live in a world where people can, can do the keto diet and count their carbs and 25 grams or less. And was it net or not? And then, and then like, okay, like not too much protein. I didn't ketosis, so I'll use the strip. And, like, and so we live, in a, we live in a world where people literally memorize, memorize all nine Enneagram types and can tell you what they mean and how they interact with other types. Right? We live in a world where guys can spend weeks researching for the fantasy draft, and they can dominate their league. Look, if we have the mental capacity to do those things, don't sell yourself short in your capacity to understand and wrestle with tough things in Scripture. Right? Like, this is a journey that we're invited into. And it's not for the sake of winning arguments and being the headstrong knowledge-based person that, that can, can theologize someone and show you how you're right and they're wrong. This is about knowing God relationally. In the same way that I want to know my wife, I want to know God. You know, I, there was a couple that, um, that when, I, when Lucy and I first got married, we loved to go to their house, and um, Eloise eventually passed away. But I remember asking them, because they were just, they were the picture of two becoming one. And I remember asking them, like, what's some marriage advice you'd give us? And, and Harry said, always ask her something you don't know yet. And he goes, we've been asking that question for, for 60 years, and I'm still finding out things I didn't know. And so in the same way, like, I want to sit down on a date with Lucy and say, tell me something I've never known before. We want to continue to pursue knowing God relationally, okay? So pursue knowing God for who he is, not who you want him to be. The next thing is we need to love others by sympathizing with their weaknesses. Okay, what we see in verses 4 through 7 is that it's possible to live in one of two realities. Reality one is an objective reality. This is a reality that's formed by what is absolutely true. It is formed by facts. And there's a second reality that is just as real, which is subjective, and is formed by our feelings. And so when people are living in a subjective reality shaped by their feelings, you can't come in with facts and figures and, and actually help them to get from point A to point B. That's just a fool's errand. Right? So we need to love others by sympathizing with where they're at. Right? At, the, at the end of the day, not everyone shares the same factual knowledge as you at the emotional level. Okay? Not everyone shares the same factual knowledge as you at the emotional level. They might be in another reality. Now think about my kids. We, we're in this kind of like the last few weeks our kids have been having nightmares and, or just yelling for us in the middle of the night. So it's 3 a.m. We hear like, Mom! Dad! And like, we get up and, and jump into the room, and it's our youngest, and she's like, my blanket's on the ground. You're like, like, you get out of your bed constantly, and now you obey, right? But the other two are having more intense things, where, where Wit was screaming, my son, he's like, Dad, Dad, I run in there, and he goes, I just dreamed about skeletons. I'm like, what? Like, like you don't even have pirate stuff. Y'all grew that two years ago. Like, what, like we don't watch skeleton shows. Like, like what do you mean you're dreaming? So, but he was dreaming about skeletons. And, and Ruthie, like, Mom, Dad, we run in there. And she's, someone touched my neck. Someone touched my neck. And I'm going, there are 13 stuffed animals in your bed. Like, 
surely you rolled over and Bear Bear's arm like grazed you or something. But for, for them, these, these are subjective realities where they had an experience, right? And so for me to comfort them in any way, I can't just start reciting the facts. I have to sympathize with their feelings and they don't care how much I know till they know how much I care. So I've got I've to step into their world, all right? And so if we're going to love people well, and when you stand on the opposite end of someone on a morally neutral issue, like we've got to step in and try to sympathize and see where they're coming from. You know, I think about, I think about my mom. Okay, like I didn't grow up in a house where alcohol was present. And so for, for my mom, though, she witnessed something growing up that her grandpa would beat my grandma or her mom and that he was a drunk. And so for her, when you talk about alcohol, it has um, strings attached to it. And so you can't just show up to someone's house that doesn't have alcohol and be like, well, Jesus turned water to wine and John 2, debate me with that. So like, like that's not the way to approach a touchy subject like that. Okay, we need to step in and say, like, okay, how can I understand where this person is coming from? All right, and so at the end of the day, the, the last thing here is we need to cherish those that Christ cherishes. We need to cherish those that Christ cherishes. So when you're, when you're looking at a morally neutral issue and asking, do I have the freedom to do this? We need to look at it and say, okay, I need to avoid the things that are going to interrupt the progress of other believers towards their maturity in Christ. So, so if this is going to cause my friend to stumble, then I'm willing to step aside from my freedom for their, for their betterment. Right? So, so the question isn't like, well, can I wear this? It's like, is this going to affect someone that I love? The question isn't, can I buy this? It's, it's how is this going to affect someone that I'm reaching out to? Like you see, the questions begin to change, right? As we avoid the things that interrupt their spiritual progress. So instead of asking, what am I free to do? We need to ask, what am I free to give up for the good of others? I think about my, my budget, Okay. We just, we just rework through our budget. If you're not a budget person, I'm an advocate of that, but you have to check in with it every so often, right? And so we, just, we went through our budget. And so the temptation is to look at everything you have and to ask, how much can I keep, right? Like, okay, how much can I keep? How much can I spend for myself? Like we're, we've been living off of fun money, which is like, this is the money that we don't have to be accountable for. We just put it in our wallet and we can buy whatever we want. It's been, for, it's been 20 bucks for the last like couple of years. I'm like, I can buy Starbucks four times. This is great, right? Like we, we decided to up that, this budget round. I'm like pumped. Like I'm like, I got 30 bucks now. Like this is incredible, right? But instead of asking the question, like how much money can I keep? We want to ask the question, okay, how much can we give away? Right? How, much, how much can we give away? Can we increase to this? Can we increase to that? Like our, how much can we give away? That's, it's a different question. Not how much can I keep, how much can I give away? In the same way, when we think about our Christian freedoms, the question isn't how much can I keep for myself? but how much can I give away to help others? You see, that's how the gospel shapes us when it comes to these morally neutral issues. It's only by the transforming power of Christ that the good of our neighbor can mean more to us than our own rights and privileges. Because in the gospel, Jesus gave up his rights and privileges for our sake. Think about this. Jesus gave up every liberty in the universe so that we could experience liberty from our bondage of sin and death. He gave up every liberty in the universe 
so that we could have the ultimate right and privilege of being called children of God. God, I ask that you would shape our lives by the truth of the gospel, that our lives wouldn't be marked by the things we're free to hold on to, but they'd be marked by radical generosity as we give up our life and give up our rights and give up our privileges to see others draw near to you. God, help us to love each other well. Let our lives be a reflection of the love that you've first shown us. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this audio from Redeemer Community Church in Johnson City, Tennessee. You can connect with us and find out more information at RedeemerCommunity.com.